Hello, you're listening to Pod Academy. More and more in the news, I've been hearing about this thing called land grabbing. Rich countries buying or renting huge areas of land in poorer countries. But who is acquiring all this land and why are they doing it? And what's happening to the people that were living there? To try and understand a little bit more about this situation, I'm talking today to Stefano Liberti, an Italian journalist, documentary filmmaker, and author of a book which has been translated into English from Italian called Land Grabbing, Journeys in the New Colonialism. Stefano Liberti, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you for calling. Yeah, no problems. Hey, look, first of all, can you uh, can you maybe just explain for us a little bit about the 2007-2008 food crisis? Yeah, in 2007-2008, price of uh, food skyrocketed. Uh, there was uh, the consequence of the financial crisis of 2007. So a big amount of financial money uh, actually moved from the traditional stock exchange uh, market to the Chicago Stock Exchange. So people, financial capitalists, uh, started to buy a huge amount of food goods. Let's say they started to buy corn, they started to buy soybean, they started to buy uh, wheat. And that's the consequence to uh, increase in a very big um, quantity the the price of this of these goods at the at the, at the market and so people uh, had to face with a huge uh, increase of price of the of their food that led to a very big riots in some part of the world um, namely in the southern part of the world in uh, in some some countries in africa central america and south southeast asia okay could you Maybe speak a little bit more specifically for me and just talk about what effect this this food crisis and then the subsequent time had on states like Saudi Arabia. Yeah, the, another consequence was that the first consequence I mentioned was that in some countries, people just uh, went to the streets and made riots because they couldn't afford to buy their food. Another consequence, which was maybe less presented in the media, was that some countries started to uh, stop exports. Some countries like uh, Vietnam, like uh, Russia also for the wheat, Vietnam for the rice, to, to actually stop export in order to protect their internal market. That led some countries some that uh, rely on, the, on imports to um, change policy. For example, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, for the, for the first time, Saudi Arabia was confronted with a um, shortage in imports of rice. So they said, uh, we have to change policy because the world market is not reliable. So try to find lands in, in some friendly countries, which uh, could, um, where, where, where Saudi businessmen could cultivate uh, the food for Saudi Arabia. And they started to, and some Saudis started to make investment in some of these countries, namely in Ethiopia, Sudan, Philippines. Um, and it was a sort of uh, um, state-run uh, land grabbing. Just uh, just talking about Ethiopia, and uh, I mean, this, the first chapter of your book is really dedicated around uh, looking at Ethiopia. And I guess this is what I, I don't really, I don't get about Ethiopia, is that 
it receives millions, millions of, of dollars every year in international food aid. But at the same time, the country is now exporting food. I mean, it just seems crazy. It is crazy. It's a big paradox. Like Ethiopia is relying on, on food imports for the for for those parts of the country which are less fortunate, we say. So the eastern part of the country uh, in the Ogaden, the Somali region, are uh, frequently touched by drought. And for that, they receive food aids from the Western world, from the United States and Europe uh, through the World Food Program. But at the same time, Ethiopia in 2008 put on the market 3 million hectares of their um, farmland, opened the market to uh, international investors. They assume that they need investment to to increase their production, to increase technology, to to start a green revolution. But the, when you see what happened on the on the field, is that like these people, uh, the Saudi people I was talking before, also the some European, uh, some Americans, uh, some Indians, they came over, they exploited the land and the water just to produce food for export, not for the local market. They didn't. They import some technology, but just for their um, land. They didn't give any benefit to the to the country, and uh, that is one of the main critical points of this uh, new policy. Because it all many countries, in especially in Africa, they are they are putting on the market their land uh, with the idea that the international investment could lead to a development. But uh, what is actually happening is exactly the opposite, because these investments are targeted to export without any, um, without the intention to have a sort of, uh, how do you say, to produce development in the country. Okay, what, uh, are they, what are they actually growing on this land? They are growing different things. They're growing food. Like, uh, for example, what I, I visit some farms, commercial farms in, uh, in Ethiopia, and they're growing vegetables and fruits for export to Saudi Arabia and the, um, the Emirates. They're growing, uh, they're growing also crops for biofuel. A lot of European um, companies rush to some countries in Africa, namely Tanzania, uh, Mozambique, and Senegal, to produce biofuel because uh, the European Union put some uh, political targets of increase of increasing of use of biofuel in the transport so uh, many european countries the majority of european countries are investing in farmland to produce biofuels the indian and the arabs are uh, producing more food for export and uh, also there are some brazilians which who are investing in uh, in Mozambique to produce soybean for export to China. Just with relation to to China, it was interesting that in your book you 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 mentioned that China is a relatively small player in in all of these land purchases, um, which is surprising because they seem to be getting a lot of press uh, in the opposite. You know, there is the idea that the Chinese are in are massively in uh, invading Africa, which isn't partially true, because if you go to Africa in the last 15 years, uh, you, you, cannot, you, 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 you could have noticed a huge increase of uh, uh, Chinese investments uh, all around Africa in virtually all countries. 
Chinese are very much uh, involved in uh, infrastructure, uh, in buildings, in oil, in, um, in mineral sectors. As for agriculture, they decided, I mean, so far, they've decided not to, not to invest massively as a state, because the, the, the fact with China is that they, they decide a state policy and then they implement it. So they decided 20, back 20 years ago to uh, invest in Africa, uh, in oil and infrastructures, and they did it with a huge amount of money, with a huge amount of financial resources. They actually discussed uh, whether uh, it was, it was the, the case to invest also in agriculture or not, and they decided not to do that for the moment uh, for some reasons first of all for a geographical reasons because it's, i mean it's not very i mean china is not that close to to africa and, for, and the second one is a political reason because they the communist party in china they know that their food is a very uh, sensitive issue and they don't want to to be accused to be they want to get accusation to be neo colonialist power. So for the moment you can you you can you have some Chinese investments in Africa, but they are small investments, private investments. There is no the big um, part of Chinese investments in agriculture. So who are the biggest investors? The the biggest investors are financial funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming from the northern part of the world, from Europe and North America. Pension funds, edge funds, and different uh, financial funds are investing in Africa. And then you have these investments from uh, companies related to to some states, like uh, Saudi companies, Qatari companies, and um, uh, Emirates companies, some Indians which are not related to the Indian state, but they are very much they were very much involved in uh, in Africa also before. Uh, so you have a, a variety of companies investing in um, in this in this rush for land. But I would say if you if you, if we look at the numbers, so the, the the huge part are for from financial funds. A lot of uh, a lot of your book is spent giving a picture of the the lives of the poor people who are directly affected by these um, land purchases, and who have one way or another lost their their farms to multinational companies. I guess first of all, do we have any idea as to the number of people that are affected in this way? It's very difficult to get a, num- a precise number, you know, because uh, first of all, more, m- many of these deals are not public, uh, so and there is not a there. There are now they start we start to have some databases made by by organizations, but uh, when I started my research, no one was talking about that. Uh, many uh, deals were struck in private by the government between the government and the companies and also the issue was not very much debated in the public opinion in the states in the concerned states so it's very difficult to say how many actors are involved in this uh, in this rush for land and also how many people are involved what i saw with my eyes is that some people were um, some farmers some small holders uh, had been evicted from the land, or they just were turned turned into uh, daily workers for the company. So they they lost their land, and they became daily workers for the company. 
uh, we have to say that we have to um, stress that in 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 Africa, uh, people use the land um, in many countries in Africa as a result of uh, customary rights. They have no rights of property, so they have, they've used maybe they've used the land since generations. And one day the government decided to give the land to some other people, to foreigners. And they happen to be evicted from their land or uh, obliged to work for the company coming to this land. What kind of resistance is growing within the countries affected? Yeah, there is some resistance growing. And when I have to confess that the very beginning of my research, I was struck because there was no there was no resistance. I mean, I went to the to, to some countries, namely Ethiopia, Tanzania, and Mozambique, and then I I saw that people were not very much concerned. They, except the people who were, uh, the very people who were uh, touched by the phenomenon. So people who were evicted, for sure, they were complaining. But in, you know, in the capitals, in the, uh, among the urban people, the middle class, they were not talking about this issue. They believed this issue was something uh, far and not so interesting. In the last uh, two to three years, I have noticed a growing concern uh, among the middle class all around Africa, with differences among countries, for sure, and also resistance against this deal. In in your book, uh, you also talk about the food security director of Qatar, uh, Mahendra Shah, and you seem to actually to be quite positive about his approach to the international land acquisition. Could you explain a little bit about what you liked uh, about him and his approach? He's a visionary, visionary guy. He's been fired. Uh, he's been, he's uh, been fired? He's been fired. <laughs> he's a visionary guy. He's been fired. <laughs> well, he's fired. But it's visionary. I mean, you, you. We shouldn't be against international investment and and uh, development. But uh, I, I personally, uh, after the, my research and my my trips uh, and my inquiring, I I believe these kind of investments are not good for the neither for uh, the countries nor for the people who are touched by the investments. Uh, Mahendra Shah which is an Indian an Indian guy living in Kenya and working he'd been working for years for the FAO he was hired by the Qatari kingdom for the Qatari state to develop a strategy for agriculture and his idea was to uh, create a big network of contract farming so involve the the farmers in the production, uh, provide them with the tools to increase their technology, uh, so increase the productivity of their fields, and share the incomes. So some some part of the production will would go to the to the to Qatar because Qatar launched this policy uh, for the same reason as um, the Saudi Arabia. So they need to. To, to have a supply of food. Uh, so part of the production was should go to, to, to Qatar. Part was to, for the local market. And the income of this, uh, of this uh, production uh, also uh, should be used to increase technology. 
So that was, uh, I think, a good idea. A little bit, uh, uh, you know, visionary, because when I asked him, okay, that's a very good idea, but whom do you want to make deals with? I said, I want to make deals directly with farmers, which is very difficult in um, in Africa because you have to pass through the government. So you, it's very difficult to just to go as a, as a foreigner and um, and discuss directly with the with the with the with the farmers, especially because the land. Uh, doesn't belong to the to the farmers, but to the state. Can you can you tell me actually why was uh, uh, Mahendra Shah fired? Is it do you think it's because of his approach? I think so, but I'm not sure. I, I couldn't I couldn't tell that 100. Cool. percent According uh, according to the World Trade Organization, every every country can block exports if if necessary. And uh, during the 2008 food crisis, many of the food exporting countries uh, stopped uh, their food exports, which scared then countries like Saudi Arabia who rely on these these food imports to feed their people. And so it then in turn led to this sort of land grabbing. But my question is, I guess, what is what is to stop this all happening again? I mean, what is, what is the point of all this investment in all the other countries when, if there is another crisis, the countries themselves can just stop food exports? Exactly, that's the point. I mean, there was a big when when I went to Saudi Arabia, there was a big discussion on this precise issue, because they said, okay, we are investing in countries which are supposed to be friendly countries. So we are making also diplomatic missions to to gain their their support and to build networks. But uh, you know, countries government could change. And uh, according to WTO rules, uh, any government could block export. So we are investing in countries, we are in investing abroad, and uh, maybe in 10 years we will, we will have invested money in a farm and we, were, we will not be able to export to our country anymore because the, government, the central government decided to uh, stop export. That was the main uh, discussion in Saudi Arabia. So, if that's if that's if if that's a, a growing discussion as to the the actual benefit of having all of this land, how does how does that play out with the international investors? I mean, how does that play out with you know the international investor? There is a big dif- there is a difference between uh, like Saudi strategy, which is supposed to be a long term strategy and uh, international investors coming from the financial sector because the the saudi they started they try to have a, a strategy for um to for their food supply uh, the international investors are just trying to make a lot of money in a short short length of time but those people i met those investors coming from the financial sector they say okay we are investing and stay we are, we plan to stay there for 5 to 10 years they don't want to stay more so they their plan is to make a lot of money in the first 5 to 10 years exploit the land and then sell the the company and uh, finally stefano how do you see this playing out? I mean, since you started doing your your research into this, have the investments and the acquisitions of land increased or decreased? I just think that this, I mean, this uh, issue is very important because it could it could actually change 
the you know the border of the of today's world because now i mean we are actually we are at the beginning of a new of a new um, phenomenon it just started started five years ago uh, it's uh, it's increasing, but it's not huge. I mean, if you go to Africa, you 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 don't see just commercial farms and uh, old people evicted. It's uh, it's still not huge, but it's growing. If it keeps on in this way, it could be re- really really worried for the future. Okay, Stefano, uh, thank you really, thank you very much for talking to me. You're very welcome, Craig. Stefano Liberti is an Italian documentary filmmaker and the author of the book Land Grabbing, Journeys in the New Colonialism. My name is Craig Barfoot and you've been listening to Pod Academy. Ciao!